Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to video number 92 and audio season four, episode 37 of Music is Not a Genre. Thanks, as always, for watching and listening. Don't forget, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. The audio version is at anchor.fm slash music is not a genre, where you can also donate. My public hub, free as always, is youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo, where you get more than just this podcast, you get music and all of that great stuff. And my relatively new podcast hub is at my website, nickdimatteo.com slash podcast. Let's get into this. This week, you know, just, just a little note here. This is a longer than usual season. Partly because who cares? I make it up. It could be as long as I want, be as short as I want. Uh, but, but partly because I had so many great topics, I didn't want to cheat myself out of being able to talk about them or cheat you out of being able to hear them and respond. And hopefully we have some things to share. And this is one that I've been planning for, oh, geez, probably almost two years, maybe, maybe a little less than that, but certainly since I started, uh, going through my CD collection and the topic for this week is Death is Dumb, Volume 9, Terry Kath, The Spirit and Sinew of Chicago. Now, if you have been listening, if you've listened to every single Music is Not a Genre episode, even before it was called that, then you will remember that I did an episode on Chicago. I want to say that was in 2020. I'm almost positive. Actually, it had to have been in 2020 because of where we were. And... I, you know, broke Chicago down, their their career down in the phases and all that, and that was fun, and, and that's great. But I wanted to spotlight Terry Kath, partly because if I'm going to do a Death is Dumb series, then for me, he has to be included. And yet I had to think of, well, what's another reason to do a second episode on this band? I mean, sure. There are people, I don't know if this is true, but I, there could be people who all they do are podcasts on Chicago or articles on Chicago, you know, like, like people will do for the Beatles or for Soundgarden or anything like that. And that's great. That's not what this podcast is. I have done episodes on the same artist in various contexts, and I will certainly revisit the Beatles as I've only done them in, uh, well, I mentioned them early on, and then I did a whole book thing uh, a couple of weeks ago. But I try not to just completely repeat, because it's an episode, you know, this is, this is not a rerun, there's got to be something new here. So 
There are four reasons why I did this episode, and that is, number one, Terry Kath himself, someone who needs to be more known. Uh, he is in many people's books, and certainly in mine, the one of the top ten you know, rock guitarists of all time. Of all time. And uh, if you don't know him, don't believe me, go ahead and listen. Uh, for those of you just listening, I am pointing at Chicago's first album, Chicago Transit Authority, the original name, well, not their original, original name, but yeah, for the original name for the albums they released. And you, if you like the kind of rock guitar that Terry Kath does uh, in, the, in the vein of a Jimi Hendrix or Beck or Jeff Beck, I guess, uh, you will understand why I say he's one of the top ten. And we'll get more into that later. Two... As you can see, and if you can, I'll explain it to you. If you're just listening, I am a huge fan. I've uh, I've been a huge fan of Chicago. I've been, I was a I was a fan of Chicago in the you know early '80s, but I became a huge fan in the late '80s, early '90s because I discovered their earlier work. And we'll kind of get into that dichotomy there and more later on. But what you the you are missing if you're only listening is my diorama. This week includes. Just about every single album on CD that Chicago has released, including Compilations, Greatest Hits, a couple of their live uh, albums as well, uh, Big Band. I actually also have their Christmas album, which is in a, a case uh, now because that's where my Christmas CDs go. I try to stay organized. Uh, so they may have put out more than one, actually. But as you know, I stopped buying CDs you know, about a decade ago. And yet... I made a point, even though I had heard some of this music in other ways of getting uh, vinyl and such such like that, getting every single CD because I wanted the complete collection, at least as far as their primary work. Again, not every live album. So that's what you're seeing here is I had to put them sideways because I couldn't make it all that pretty. But I've highlighted, showcased five of their albums and I'll explain why later. But that just points out what a huge fan I am. And if you know me, if, you, if you've listened to me, you understand why. They had what I would call, at least for their first 10 years or more, uh, 15 maybe, an, just an awkward eclecticism, it, it, bordering on awkward. And I once read an article you know, saying that they were the great American experiment, and they were unsure as to whether or not that experiment failed or succeeded. Uh, not for me to judge, maybe not for any of us to judge, except personally. And I say awkward because they were willing to jump from rock to jazz to blues to classical to country folk to to vocal, you know, layered harmonies to pop to progressive and fusion and more, even a little electronic in there, remix type stuff later on, in a way that showed to me uh, a, a desire to want to be all of those things and do all of those things and, and love and love all of those things. And there may be other reasons why they did that. But for me, it showed that one group, one artist can do that much and make so much, if not all of it, work and still be considered, well, there's, they're just the one band, you know. It's the whole idea of music is not a genre. And... If you don't know that part of Chicago, I'm not going to go deep into it this time because I did do that other podcast. And look it up. 
Uh, but I will kind of go into that a little bit. And as I said, I've devoured all of their albums that, you know, their recorded albums, not a lot, not all of the live albums. And even though, uh, you know, I wait, I've waited with anticipation for every new album they released and have at times been unfortunately disappointed in some of what I've heard and, and in, and especially, and, you know, I'm going to caveat this because, as I said, I am a huge fan and I've listened to and loved everything they've done. But I've been disappointed in what I see as their lack of bravery in just leaning in to the their their jazz, you know, fusion, you know, origins, even if they feel like they don't want to go full on rock again for whatever reason, you know. Uh, there's no reason for them to continue or if they were continuing to try to hit the charts. Uh, Their, their live game has always been the strong, strong, maybe the strongest in many ways. And they continue at it. Stalwarts well over 50 years. And that's probably, you know, their back catalog and live is probably where they make, you know, most of their money almost all of it at this point. So why not have been more risky at some point, you know, uh, in the career? It's sort of the whole idea why, well, Stone of Sisyphus was held back. And who knows who made that final decision? But I think in part because at the time they thought it was a little too out there. In hindsight, it really wasn't that out there. There were some things, but, you know, they went again more for the mainstream. and They were trying to kind of ride that wave at the time, which, hey, a lot of people do. And let me let me say that any band lasts this long, have this kind of career, is going to have a lot of career ups and downs and financial ups and downs. And we can't always know from the outside why they make the decisions they make. We assume that artists of this caliber have just always been, you know, at a certain point in their career, rich and able to just be financially self-sufficient and run on their own. But we've heard so many stories of, of, you know, people like Billy Joel, for example, who just have run into such uh, financial, uh, almost destitution, maybe not quite, uh, to the point where they needed to refigure what they were doing. And sometimes that has affected artists' music, sometimes it doesn't. And I feel like, in, in the case of Chicago, yes, it has it affected their music. Uh, third reason is Chicago needs to be better understood. You know, I think any artist, especially an artist with a long career, that's as widely known as a band like this or even the Beatles, there are a lot of misconceptions there because, as I mentioned, I think in the Beatles podcast, we kind of, it's like that uh, parable about the elephant and the blind people. I think it that's what it is. And you know, one thought it was one thing, one thought it was another, because you're touching different parts of it. We kind of all do that with artists. And as comprehensive as I try to be, I'm sure there are things I miss as well. But I think that one service I try to provide is to give a more holistic view of an artist that I am profiling. And, you know, I was going to save this for later. I'll say it right now. If you like, if you were of an older generation and you were there and old enough to remember when they released their first album, Pointing Here, Chicago Transit Authority, and their career progressed in the incredible ways that it did in those first 10 years especially, then 
That's the Chicago when you think, oh, Chicago, you think of that, whether you were the one uh, kind of person who was into, you know, the hits and Color My World and 24 64, even up through If You Leave Me Now, Baby, What a Big Surprise, like that whole, the, the way that changed, uh, but hits nonetheless. Uh, or if you were more into their albums as a whole and their, their progress, progressiveness and their eclecticism again, that's the Chicago you know. If you were a person who grew up and became of age, I guess, or of awareness in the 80s and was first exposed to them with their huge pop success, the greatest period of success, really, I think, uh, then that's what you think of you hear Chicago. You think uh, pop, power ballads, easy listening, you know, all of that. And yes, they were that too. If you were like me who started there and then dipped back and heard all the rest of the stuff, then you might think of Chicago as all of that and appreciate all of it. But what I'm trying to do here is bridge that gap and say Chicago was in many ways several different bands, but at the same time, they really have just been one band all this time. You know, even though only three original members remain to this day, that's still kind of amazing over a 50-year career. And... To understand a band like Chicago, you should and need to explore all of their eras. Uh, and in part, that's going to tie into, you know, the, the Terry Kath. And that's the fourth reason, which is I want to put all that together in context. My fandom and the changes they went through, uh, how to understand them better as a band completely. Terry, and Terry Kath himself and how all that relates and that's and that's really what I'm doing here. So um, some of this, is, you know, your fan, uh, you may want to, I won't say fast forward because you might like this. If you're not a fan, this is something you want to hear. It's a super, super quick history uh, of both the band and, you know, Terry Kath's kind of trajectory. Uh, so for, you know, from the late 60s through their classic period, they were really the core seven. You know, Lee Lockman, uh, Walt uh, Parazader, James Pango, the, the horn section and, you know, flute and all that. And then Robert Lamb, keys and vocals, and uh, Peter Cetera, bass and vocals, and uh, Danny Serafin, drums, and Terry Kath, guitars and vocals. And then eventually, uh, for a few albums, they added uh, uh, the amazing Latin percussionist, Laudio de Alveda, Beda. Uh, and he was an official member of the band. So they were eight for a while. And that lasted until um, Terry died, you know. And before I get there, I want to kind of point out, since we're, this is what we're doing, if you look at my diorama here, you'll see a few albums highlighted. And you'll see this entire like list here. If I pull this up, I feel, and I've said this before, and, and, I, and I may have said it differently, but I'll kind of distill it, that their classic period really, in a sense, goes up through Chicago 11. Now, there was a shift there um, after 7 to more con concise songs, concise albums, uh, you know, but they still retained a lot of their original flair and spark and arrangement and all of that. On the on eight, ten, and eleven, nine was greatest hits. Uh, 
that to me, I consider their classic period. And in that classic period, especially through up through Chicago seven, and even though six was sort of a precursor to eight, 10 and 11, uh, really all of those albums had a tremendous amount of progressiveness to them and eclecticism again. Later albums had some of that too, but not to that degree. To the point where when I read this book, which I will probably review this season, I haven't decided yet if there's time, uh, the song that never ends, which is the history of progressive rock, it it, it absolutely floored me, floored me, that Chicago wasn't mentioned once, not even in passing. Sure, you don't think of Chicago as a progressive band often, or if you do, you certainly don't think of them as a core progressive band in the way that, say, Genesis or Yes or King Crimson, all of those people, and more. But they stretched out their era of progressiveness and exploration to a degree that they at least deserved a mention. As if to say... Well, here's a band that was rooted in other things that explored progressive rock because they were influenced by other progressive rock bands, whatever. I think that was a major oversight. And if I do review that book this season, you're going to hear me talk a lot more about that uh, or at least mention it again. But everyone has their favorite eras of Chicago. That's mine. I highlighted that album, their, their original album, CTA. Uh, and But then up here, I also put Chicago 5. And that's because I did kind of a retro, you know, a chronography of them, just again, you know, as I've done it before, to get a sense of where, what do I really think my favorite album is? Uh, it's hard to say best because that's a real judgment call. And everything has its strengths, you know, and weaknesses. And I came to the conclusion that the sweet spot for me was five. Now, I wouldn't want to eliminate any of the other ones because I like a lot of stuff on those two. But it was able to include amazing pop hits like uh, Saturday in the Park and progressive stuff like a hit by Varese. Uh, I think that's how it's pronounced. Uh, which that uh, composer was mentioned a tremendous amount by Frank Zappa in the Frank Zappa documentary, which was an awesome thrill for me to have heard that. And, you know, the the craziness and kind of forward-thinking avant-garde, modernist approach that that composer took. And there's there's the love and there's the politics, and it just seems to me five seems to encapsulate them. If I had to say to anybody... Oh, yeah, you know, uh, this person's like, I don't want to listen to a double album, or I don't want to listen to the whole catalog, or I don't know where to start, where do I start? I would say start with five. Then go backwards, then go forwards, you know. I'd love to hear your opinion on that. I'm sure everyone has another, a different album that's their favorite. I've seen it online. I would love to hear your opinion. After that period, that the classic period ended when Terry Kath uh, died from a self-inflicted accidental gunshot wound in 1978. Floored the band. Didn't know what to do. Thought they might break up, etc. Uh, continued on. And through, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14. And I've decided that Hot Streets is the one that I'm going <laughs> to highlight here. They went through growing pains. They did their best. You know, they still had 
there's seven members if you count uh, the you know Alabeda and uh, all the other six guys, and then kind of a revolving door of of guitarists and and all of that, and really were floundering. You know, there were actually there are quite a few gems on those albums if you're able to, you know, kind of absorb the fact that they took a real turn after 11 in their sound you'll find some gems uh you'll also find kind of the surge of influence that peter Sotero was beginning to have and all of that and listen at that point anybody who was able to step in and make this work you know was welcome even if there were major disagreements as to where they were you know going to go and then you know their breakout early 80s period with David Foster coming in and, and all of that and, and Peter Cetera really becoming the voice of the band, you know, and being the identity of the band for those, you know, couple of albums that he stayed on. And I've chosen 17 here because I think that the, some of my favorite songs from that era, really, that's that's the album. Uh, they added Bill Champlin. Uh, Chris Pinnock was there for a really long time. And or for those years anyway as uh and and so they proved that they could come back and do what they did you will hear echoes of their past on those albums but to me they're they're a different band there and yes if you're talking DNA you know what elements are they using in their music and even even lyrically yeah, sure. They're the same band, of course. You know, I make a lot about phases. You know, I make a fuss about them and how different, you know, we. I've talked about that with the Beatles in passing. And when I do my actual, you know, definitive Beatles podcasts, uh, I will certainly do that. I'll probably break it up into their phases uh, as I see them. And yet there's a through line there. And, you know, the Beatles are the Beatles, even though. 1963 Beatles and 1968, let's say, very different, and things in between. Chicago is the same way. You know, if you didn't know the band and didn't know any of their songs and heard a song of theirs from 70 and then a song of theirs from even 76, 77, and then another one from like 1980, and then 83 or 4, you know, you'd be like, this it's not even the same band, you know, and and yet, yes, break it down, there's a through line. And that and and that's what's exciting to me is evolution. Um, but let me get through this history real quick because I wanna make a big point about how much their evolution was was affected and why. When when Satara left to pursue his quite successful solo career, he was in many people's minds, seamlessly replaced by Jason Sheff. Uh, and uh, Dwayne Bailey uh, popped in uh, and took over for Chris Pinnock on guitar and hung, hung around for a while. I want to point out that in my mind, anybody who's played with Chicago is a great musician. I mean, by definition, you would have to be because from where they started, if you're going to hang with those dudes you're going to need to be able to step up and do it. And every one of these these guys, whether it was in passing for a year or five years or in the case of uh, Danny Serafin's replacement when he left in the, I think, early 90s, uh, Tris Imboden, for, for even more than the original 
you know, longer period than the original drummer himself, uh, or Lou Pardini, who's been in the band longer than Peter Cetera ever was, you know, things like that. Every one of these guys has done amazing things and is, you know, worthy in their own right. Whether you like or dislike any particular era or songs and stuff like that. Uh, then that hung out for a while with Tris and, and Lou Pardini. Uh, in the last few years, Walt Parazader retired for almost 100%. And it's now down to the three originals, you know, uh, Lee Lockman, James Panko, Robert Lamb. Uh, Lou, Lou Pardini is still there. And then a few other guys who have actually been around for quite a while, whose names I didn't note down, but who, again, you know, great. Uh, let me say, why, you know, why did I go into that much detail other than for people who don't know it? And that is to get back to the main subject of this podcast, which is Terry Kath and his death and how his death affected this band, you know, there are, there are very famous deaths, bands in their prime, you know, band members, uh, bands in their prime, that we can note if we know rock history, uh, such as uh, Brian Jones, The Stones, um, you know, Keith Moon, Bonham, uh, you know, on and on. Uh, John Lennon doesn't count because the Beatles were broken up by them, but you you know you get the idea. Uh, Kurt Cobain certainly, uh, Taylor Hawkins recently, just extremely sad, especially because it's so fresh. And I'll go into that a little bit more in my final podcast of the season. And in each case, the death affected the bands differently. And my contention is that. Uh, you know, Terry's death was not the, the the most affected as far as bands go. I think that would probably be Kurt Cobain because that just ended the band. Boom. Well, you know, as much as the other guys contributed to that band, he it was the really a one-headed monster in a lot of ways. Uh, as you know, Mick would Jagger would say about the Beatles' four-headed monster, they were really kind of a two-headed monster, as we all know even though in business they were equals in their music, you know, it was really Lennon and McCartney. In the way it was Jagger, or is Jagger and uh, Richards, even though all the other members contributed, you know, things that made the, gave the band the identity. If one of them had died, it would have been different if one of the main people had died. And so when, you know, when Keith Moon died, it didn't fully derail the Who, it changed their sound to a degree, but not so much that they didn't sound, you know, like the who. When Bonham died, that was really the end of that band, you know. And, you know, it was largely because they were coming to a close anyway for many other reasons. But, uh, but you know, there was, there was a kind of a, a gel and synergy there that made that just too, you know. And with the death of Taylor Hawkins, that remains to be seen. You know, the Foo Fighters have been around for over 25 years and they were really at another career peak with all the things they've been doing. We're set to do a tour with this, we, we don't know. You know, I would imagine Dave Grohl especially and the other guys are going to want to continue music in some way, but who knows how. And with Terry Kath, I think it's much more complex because 
what I did is, and this is kind of a fun thing, is I broke the band down into uh, body parts. Yes, I did. Because why not? And that's partly where the title came from, that, that yes, Terry Kath, I believe, was the spirit and the sinew of the band. He had, he had elements that kind of held that band together in a way, uh, and I mean musically, I don't mean business-wise or relationship-wise, in a way that, that kept everything connected, like sinew does. And the spirit of being just uh, great as a composer, but also being able to just fly off and go where the spirit would take him and allow that to infuse the music so that even in some of their more regimented songs, there was still that element of free-flowing spirit, you know. Uh, I said Lamb was the heart of the band, is the heart of the band. I don't know why I say that, except that there's something about, um, in some ways, I almost think of if there was one member who kind of epitomizes the band from every era, it would be Robert Lamb, and he's done so much as a composer and and to you know uh, contribute, and he's had some solo uh, work which I listened to a few months ago, and I have to say a lot of it I really freaking like. And as a matter of fact, I find that Lamb's later solo work, his more recent solo work, reminds me more of where I think Chicago might have gone if they stuck with their original kind of feel. And it makes me wonder why that hasn't been more incorporated, you know, Lamb stuff, into Chicago's work. I don't really know who pulls the strings there or, or what have you, or if Lamb didn't, you know, want to contribute that, wanted more creative control and all of that. But listen to it. I would suggest listening to it. Um, Sotero's like the head and the face of, of the band. Uh, Seraphin was the muscle, the horn section, the bones. Garcio, the producer, was I think the conscience in a way that's kind of the super ego, you know, uh, and that is how I broke it down. And so when somebody like Kath dies, it's not it, and it was never a band where, it, like a Cobain, you know, or or even like a Lennon and McCartney, you had three lead vocalists: so Tara Lamb, uh, Kath. Every now and then, someone else would chime in on the on vocals. Uh, everyone contributed to the arrangement and composition of the songs. Uh, I mean, not every song was composed by every single member. Some, you know, what I'm saying, but on the whole, as a package. And there was such a give and take in the way you would hope there would be with a, you know, somewhat jazz and fusion oriented and jam oriented band. You need that give and take. And that early give and take that was much more free-flowing really so shaped their sound through the years that it would be hard to say that, oh, if you, you know, if one of, you know, member dies, then the entire band collapses and, and is gone because too many people contributed too equally to that. And at the same time, when you lose the spirit of a band... In order to recreate yourself, to me, you either have to find a new spirit that connects you to the flow of, you know, inspiration and connects your past to your present to your future, or you have to 
find a different reason to exist. Now, this might, I don't know if this is going to be controversial or not, but I'm going to say it. Every single band member continues and continued to contribute musically, even when horns were de-emphasized in uh, some part of the 80s, you know, early 90s. Uh, every single one of them, you know, has and made major contributions, continues to do so. And obviously has spark and spirit and, and inspiration and aspiration and the desire to want to continue as a musician and down a musical path. I absolutely do not discount any of that. And at the same time, I will say that their reason for existing, which I think in the late 70s was like, that's all they knew how to do. They needed to continue a career. They were trying to find their way and hoping that they could put the pieces together in the midst of great devastation. Coming out of that, I, uh, they, they, wanted to, they wanted to feel like and show that they could come back and come back big and be successful, not just for financial reasons, but also to say that we still exist and we still matter and we, you know, can, can press on and everything. And to me, that's a very different reason for existing than that kind of organic spirit. And so I guess what I'm saying is that when Terry Kath died, it, it killed their spirit. And even though their energy returned and their reason for being, that French term I always mispronounce, raison d'etre, uh, you know, uh, changed, but what existed... I don't I don't think that they were able to keep in touch with or maintain or recreate that that spirit that that kind of life essence that Kath inhabited and expressed. I'd love to know if you disagree with me. Uh am I am I overstating Kath's influence on my overstating what Kath did for that band. I, you know, um, I know that their live game is where they're really at. And I did see them live once and it was amazing. Uh, I wish I had seen them in their heyday, but I would have been a little young, you know. Um, I, I, th- I, but I will stand by that comment and say that while I was thrilled in in many ways and impressed with what they did on 16, 17, even 18, 19, and even to some degree 21. Uh, And I'll point this out too. Let me see if I can find them. But that that blue and which ones were they? The uh, shoot, man. Oh, here we go. The blue and red ones from the late 90s that were the compilations where they added some new songs with Lenny Kravitz. I thought showed some spark there. Oh, you got to witness some action. Yeah, it's all falling apart. Um, I don't think that they have ever been the same. And I will say again that I wish that they had found more of a kind of a fuck it switch and just been like, what are we doing here? We we have a legacy. We're we're amazing already. We don't need to worry about charts. We don't need to worry about popularity. Let's just go off the deep end. You know, and while each musician in their own way has done that 
in small ways, their overall sound, to me, has for the longest time now settled into easy listening. And even though that softness has been a part of their sound since the beginning, it really undercuts their, again, awkward eclecticism that I've always loved. And that has influenced me. And I've mentioned Chicago's influence on my music before. I used a different song in the other podcast as a sample because I thought that that song kind of embodied uh, how their 80s work influenced me. I believe it was One Minute Chai Forever. You can look it up. In this case, uh, I'm using a song from Rex's album, The Sunshine Seminar, called Ripe, R-I-P-E, that to me embodies the influence that their early work had on me. There's some progressive elements in it. There is the, uh, this is, this, these are the words I use to describe them, sprawling, progressive, funky, dramatic, quasi-spiritual, uh, which was a lot of their early and, you know, early sound, first decade or so, and is really also present in my song, Ripe, which I will include uh, as always at the end of this podcast. And you can always look it up, streaming services, look up the, sh- the Sunshine Seminar Rec and the song Ripe, which is uh, towards the end of the album. Where do you fall in the Chicago spectrum? Do you prefer their work with Terry, their work after? Do you like both equally? Uh, do you have a favorite album? Do you have a least favorite album? Do you have songs that you like that no, you think no one else knows? Uh... You know, which which I forget the, the song. There's this Russian band who does Chicago covers, and they did um, a song of theirs from the, was 12, 13, or 14, where they did what I hoped that the original song would do, which is they went back to the chorus, and, and I think it's like, want you to know I'm a man, say the word, and I'll say it again. I think it was that one. No, no, it wasn't that one. Um, I w- I'm sorry, I can't remember it. But uh, if I do, I'll put it in my follow-up at the end of the season. Were you old enough to remember Terry's death? And if so, how did it affect you? It's a great documentary on him out there. I suggest you look at it. His daughter kind of co-produced it and uh, did a wonderful job. Do you think other band members deserve credit or more credit for sustaining Chicago's heart and soul? Am I overstating what I said about Terry? And under, you know, emphasizing the the work that Robert Lamb and others have done to keep them together and to keep them, you know, vibrant and vital in some ways. I want to hear all of your opinions on all of this. Agree, disagree. Tell me things that I missed or did got wrong or that I don't know at all, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation and connection. Thank you for listening and watching. And I'll talk to you Maybe next week, maybe two weeks. I may be taking a week off, but I will talk to you very soon.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 